Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only, Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota. Let's go places. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like, da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like, it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to, like, that's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. From the small towns to the big cities, we bring you the stories that matter. This is, this is, this is the Our American Stories podcast. This is Lee Habib, the host of the Our American Stories podcast. We can't wait to bring you these fantastic stories from our team. They work hard day in, day out to bring you stories from everyday Americans. We tell the stories about this great country that may not be perfect, but sure is beautiful. If you'd like to support us in all that we do here, visit OurAmericanStories.com and go to the Giving tab. Join our team in the work we do and become a part of all that's going on here. We're a nonprofit, and we appreciate both one-time gifts and monthly donations. It's for you and through you that we tell these stories. And now we have the story of a man in a glass coffin. Also, the story of a man's journey towards sobriety. But first, here's a story about what happened to Saturday morning cartoons. Here's Mark McRae, author of The Best Saturdays of Our Lives. <laughs> Now, I know that many of us have memories of waking up on Saturday morning and with a bowl of cereal and, you know, watching our favorite cartoons. Saturday morning had been around for a long time, you know, um, really at the beginning of of the television age. And uh, the first uh, official Saturday morning cartoon 
dates all the way back to December 10th, 1955, uh, with the Mighty Mouse Playhouse. Hi, boys and girls. Here we go, rocketing into a fun-filled, exciting cartoon show. Hold on to your seats as we blast off to visit all your favorite cartoon stars. So these were theatrical shorts featuring Mighty Mouse. Uh, CBS had bought the library and repackaged all of these old Mighty Mouse cartoons into a Saturday morning show. But again, it was 1955 and it wasn't a lot of strategy. And the trend would continue through the 1960s. Uh, you had a lot of primetime cartoons like the Flintstones and Top Cat and Alvin and the Chipmunks. All right now, boys, how about a little dinner music? Okay, Dave, what are we singing? Some of those uh, shows were not as successful in primetime, and the networks would, instead of just uh, taking them off the air completely, would move those shows to Saturday morning. So in the beginning, Saturday morning sort of became like a dumping ground for the networks to place shows that they had contracts with in prime time and to finish those contract obligations will place a lot of that, that programming on Saturday morning. And once those shows were placed on Saturday morning, guess what? They just became a huge, huge success. Fast forward to the 1966 season, and there is a young executive at CBS named Fred Silverman who really wants to make changes. However, you know, CBS is the number one primetime network. They're number one in the daytime where all the soap operas and game shows are airing. And so the only thing that he was allowed to really fiddle with was Saturday morning. And he knew that the Batman series that was airing over on ABC featuring Adam West was um, doing huge ratings and that there was this huge superhero trend that was going on. And Fred Silverman knew that creating any type of superhero series and bringing, a, bringing that series to Saturday morning would, um, would definitely elevate CBS's Saturday morning schedule. So he worked with a fledgling new company called Filmation Associates, and they produced The New Adventures of Superman during the 1966-67 season. Also airing that same year was Hanna-Barbera's Space Ghost series, as well as the Lone Ranger cartoon. The New Adventures of Superman produced huge, huge ratings, bigger ratings than anyone had ever seen previously on Saturday morning. The year before, there was a Beatles cartoon that was based on the, the famous rock band that had the biggest ratings, but Superman's ratings blew those ratings away, and people were just amazed by it. Not only did Superman do really well during this time period, it, the series created what every network wants, which is a halo effect. So that means that not only did the kids stick around to watch Superman, they watched Space Ghost, they watched The Lone Ranger, and the entire CBS Saturday morning schedule. And the network went from number three to number one, sort of upsetting the previous year winner, ABC, because the ABC uh, had the Beatles cartoon. And so people started thinking, you know what? We can actually start making big money on Saturday morning cartoons. And so the following year, you had the industry just grow with Hanna-Barbera producing like six new superhero shows. And ABC realizing that they lost to Superman, uh, there was an executive there. His name was Ed Vane. And Ed Vane, I give props to Ed Vane because Ed Vane immediately commissioned Marvel shows, Spider-Man, the Fantastic Four to go up against DC-inspired Superman. And in my opinion, that was like the best counter-programming move ever from the 1967 season. And then, of course, following all of that, you know, the, the, 
the industry started to change. And um, the next thing you know, the Archies came in. And, and the Archies, which was based on the Archie comic book series, those ratings outbeat Superman. And, and the next thing you know, everyone wanted to see teenagers and rock bands on Saturday morning. And then Josie and the Pussycats and Scooby-Doo came along. And the Jackson 5 following that. Even the Harlem Globetrotters uh, had music associated with Saturday morning cartoons. And then in 1974, you had your first live action superhero series, Shazam, which which really drew big ratings. And another company called Sid and Marty Croft Productions, they got into the Saturday morning game uh, with puppetry and live action, producing shows such as H.R. Puffin Stuff, Lidsville, and uh, The Land of the Lost, which was a, a huge hit for NBC Saturday morning as well. And so the sponsorships were there, there was scheduling, there was ratings, there was programming strategy, everything that primetime already had on television, everything that regular daytime already had, Saturday morning had finally joined uh, the big time. And it was wonderful, exciting, and fun, and animators were being employed, and people were working in the industry, and everything was just growing and flowing. However, there was also a Saturday morning backlash that occurred. Uh, So with all of the superhero programming, a lot of Christian groups and parent groups were concerned that there was too much violence on television. You have to remember, this is the age of uh, Vietnam. The Vietnam War was going on, and the Vietnam War was being played on the 6 o'clock news every night. And people were concerned that uh, that kids were seeing the news as well as watching uh, violent Saturday morning cartoons. And so when the Archies came in and, you know... Uh, demonstrated huge ratings, that was sort of the logical answer that things need to be toned down just a bit. This also sort of created a little bit of censorship on Saturday morning as well, because a group that was created called Action for Children's Television, they sort of became the censorship group, a grassroots group that lobbied in Washington to try to have certain laws changed regarding children's programming. And for a long time, they wielded a a lot of power over um, Saturday morning television. For example, if a story was written for a Saturday morning cartoon, then they had the right to look over the story and make changes. And then, you know, the regular S&P standard and practices would also make their, their, their changes as well, if necessary. But for, for example, there was an episode of Josie and the Pussycats where the villain is chasing the Pussycats through the kitchen. And the original scene called for their mascot, Sebastian, to hide in a pot. And when Action for Children's Television got a hold of that story... And they decided, no, we can't show a cat hiding in a pot because some kid at home might actually try to put their own, you know, pet cat in a in a pot. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that assessment. But anyway, the scene was changed so that when the villain ran in the kitchen, all of the Josie and the Pussycats cast was hiding and suddenly you see Sebastian jump out of the pot and start to run because he, the cat thinks it's going to be discovered. So that was the compromise. The, the compromise was that Sebastian would already be in the pot when the villain showed up in the kitchen looking for uh, the kids on that particular show. And uh, so a lot of this went on for a long time through the 70s and through the 80s where you had a lot of superhero shows which had a lot of action, but no one could actually throw a punch. And that trend would really continue all the way through the 1990s. 
But anyway, uh, I'm not trying to jump ahead, but you know, you had all this exciting programming in the 70s, and then when you hit the 1980s, things sort of change again. There's sort of this uh, deregulation during the Reagan era, and the toy show is born. He-Man and the Masses of the Universe and G.I. Joe become huge hits, and you're getting first-run syndication in the afternoon, the Smurfs also show up on Saturday morning, uh, uh, which was a successful Belgian comic book as well as animated series um, in the past, and they do huge ratings for NBC. Smurf Prince! <laughs> it won't be long now, as we <laughs> And the Smurfs actually create a halo effect for NBC's Saturday morning after that network was in third place for a long time. So you sort of have this cutesy era happening in the 80s, along with toy shows, along with um, game shows like Hubert and Donkey Kong being brought to Saturday morning as well. Dungeons and Dragons was a huge, huge hit for CBS uh, that was made in the 80s as well. And uh, the trend pretty much continued through the early digital age of the 1990s. And so in the fall of 1992, NBC drops out of the Saturday morning game and they decide that if they could make more money through advertising and, and revenue by having a Saturday morning version of the Today Show. Uh, mainly, this decision was mainly uh, done because there was a new law that was passed called the Children's Television Act. And what this act said, it was an FCC ruling that said that all networks had to have three hours of educational television running on the air. The other ruling also said that the uh, Television Act um, reduced advertising on the weekend. So during the week, advertising could be like anywhere from 12 minutes, but on the weekend, Advertising could only be 10 minutes. And so that meant that was reduced time in, for advertisers on the weekend. And that also meant reduced revenue for the networks. So there were a lot of changes. And for the most part, the networks just ignored the changes. And as NBC exited, Fox Kids came into play by creating their own Saturday morning block. The block was created by a woman named Margaret Lesh. And she created the X-Men series that premiered in 1992, as well as Power Rangers. And when those shows took off, the next thing you know, Fox Kids is number one, and they are also creating a halo effect. And it sort of puts CBS and ABC on notice that they need to start readjusting their schedules and getting shows and programming to compete with Fox. So when Fox got into the game, they totally dominated Saturday morning and they created a real destination for kids again. And so the 90s, in my opinion, was sort of like the last hurrah for Saturday morning. But because of the rules that were imposed by the FCC, um, it became increasingly harder for networks to compete on Saturday morning. Plus, you know, you had the day, you know, Nickelodeon had been around for a while with the 25-hour network that was very successful. In 1992, Cartoon Network launched, and they had mostly the Hanna-Barbera, uh, MGM, and Looney Tunes library. So uh, the competition was getting really tight on the kids' side of the business, and networks were increasingly being squeezed out of Saturday morning because if you're a kid and you can watch cartoons all day, every day... Um, why would you wait just to watch on Saturday morning? It's almost like the appeal of Saturday morning was sort of going away and it was it was becoming an old idea. And the kids growing up in the 1990s and early 2000s, they were their viewing habits started to change. And, you know, so waiting for a show to, to come on Saturday wasn't that big of a deal. Whereas, you know, back in the day, kids waited all week 
just to see their Saturday morning cartoons. So we start to roll around the night around the 2000s and uh, Saturday morning is still going. It's holding on by a thread and you have a new player enter the game and it's the WB Network. And the WB Networks, they also start creating new shows like uh, The Legion of Superheroes. And um, after the WB's Saturday morning went away, um, there really hasn't been any Saturday morning again. I mean, I feel like the broadcasters threw in the towel and that was the end. I mean, it was regulation from the FCC with the Children's Television Act. Uh less revenue that can be made on the weekend also a sort of destroyed Saturday morning and the networks not being able to compete with the cable networks that had kids programming on 24 hours a day so I feel like those are the three things that killed Saturday morning programming however the silver lining is that It wouldn't be a kid's 24-hour kid network unless Saturday morning didn't prove itself as a money-making, revenue driver, strategy, programming, a production on the networks every week for 30 to 40 years. So, uh, but these guys, these amazing men and women working in the animation industry still managed to inspire and entertain. And that's why I always take my hat off to them because they were probably working under the, you know, like crazy conditions, you know, having to deliver a cartoon in a week. You know, like during the the theatrical days. So like a Tom and Jerry back in the 1940s, they had a boatload of money to make the cartoon and they had up to a year to make it. These guys didn't have a year to make one cartoon. And uh, so there were a lot of things working against them. And I feel like sometimes when, you know, you don't necessarily have all the bells and whistles to make your creative cartoon or animation. I feel like. It makes you work harder because you have to step up to the challenge and find new ways to tell stories in animation or live action. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler. And a special thanks to him for bringing us this piece. And to Mark McRae for telling this story. And by the way, you can go to his website. The initials are tbsoul.com, T-B-S-O-O-L.com. And his book is The Best Saturdays of Our Lives. And what a great story about innovation and creativity. During those 30 or 40 years, we got all that content so people could watch it when they want and where they want. You get some good and you get some bad with technology, but we're never going back. I think there's the Super Bowl now and a few other things that we all watch as a nation together. And as always, so many of our stories about the past are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life and all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And if you have a story to share, we want to hear it. Send them to ouramericanstories.com. That's ouramericanstories.com. And click on the Your Stories tab. We can't wait to hear from you. Up next, Chris Suriano from the House of David Museum tells a story about a man in a glass coffin along the shores of Lake Michigan. Here's Monty with the story. The year is 1927. The place, Benton Harbor, Michigan. Home of the House of David, a religious colony led by Benjamin Pernell who preached that if you followed his message and gave all your worldly possessions to him, you would never die. Unfortunately for Ben, though, he contracted tuberculosis, which he died from. Here's Chris Seriano with what happened next. He didn't teach ever that he was going to die. So here he died. And it's, it was pandemonium. It was mass chaos at the House of David. So Benjamin, they kept wrapped in damp, warm towels for eight days, thinking that he was going to rise again. Finally, the Barron County coroner said, listen, 
it's been eight days. You either bury the guy or we're going to bury him. But luckily for the House of David, they had the Soviets to look towards for inspiration. Well, during that process of having him wrapped like that, they found out the process that uh, linen in Russia had been uh, used to embalm and put his body in a hermetically sealed glass coffin. That's what they did. And there Ben Purnell sat for the next 60-some years in his hermetically sealed glass coffin, while his massive mansion decayed around him as the House of David dwindled in numbers due to their belief in celibacy. But in 1988, twice, the House of David Diamond House got broke into. But the first time, that they ran quickly. The second time was not a good day. These kids, these four kids, had studied the movement of the House of David people. They had sat out in the woods. They were locals. They were in their backyard, basically. They figured out when the House of David people moved back and forth around the Diamond House. They came back on a particular day that they knew that there wasn't much movement, some one of the weekend days. They cut a hole in the roof of the Diamond House mansion where they dropped down and they spent the entire day stealing things. They took seven big van loads of things out of the House of David Diamond House. So vases, urns, statues, oil paintings from all over the world. These things came from the richest of rich people that joined. They even had king and queen of England or Ireland or something come here and give gifts to Ben and Mary back in the early times. And those things disappeared. Well, one of the worst things that happened was they weren't satisfied with just items that were in the rest of the mansion. They wanted to see Ben because he's, that's a big, big, big part of our local history is him and his body being in there. And they found out that he was in his parlor. There's a stone wall that separates the catwalk from the Diamond House annex into his area. And it's got a big steel bank vault door on it. So there's no way you're getting through that door. And, the, and there's wire, electric wires, like shock wires from the door. So even if you touch the door, you're probably going to go to heaven real quick or somewhere, right? So they went back. One of them was a contractor. They went back to his house, got a big ramming bar, and they rammed a hole through this stone wall. And they, they made it big enough where they could pull the rest of the rocks out and they could get their bodies through the hole. And they got into his parlor where his tomb is at. And I interviewed those people. They told me, Chris, when we got in there, it was like a pharaoh's tomb. So around Ben's glass-sealed coffin, which is, was up at an angle, were piles and piles of rings and diamonds and rubies and necklaces and vases. And it was like, what happened to the stuff when people came there? The, the beautiful things that they came there with. They couldn't have those anymore, right? They didn't know. They just had to give them away. Well, they were saved. A majority of them were saved in the Diamond House. So when he was buried, he was buried like a, like a pharaoh and, uh, and like a, an emperor. So they took some things off of that. But the sad thing was, is Ben had a 22 karat diamond ring on his finger and a big, huge diamond filled uh, and ruby filled white gold custom made necklace from House of David Jewelers. They wanted those things bad and they took the pry bar, the ramming bar and pried this, the glass dome off of his coffin, which is hermetically sealed, it can't be sealed again. But they, they, so they broke the ring off of his finger, broke his finger in the meantime and ripped the medallion off of his neck. They took those things along with all the other things and they said that there was this tall, solid gold, like a cougar standing there with diamonds in his eyes and a big ruby in his teeth. And they said they wanted that bad. So they tried to push that thing across the floor. They couldn't even hardly move it. Um, and the 22 karat diamond on his finger was one of the biggest in the world 
at the time. So they got away. They got away with that break-in. And it was advertised all over, everywhere, all over the country. It was a big deal. Finally, the I interviewed the state police officer at my museum one day, and he said, Chris, I'm the one that made the arrest. And I said, well, tell me about it. And he said, we had, we had pictures. The House of David had, people had pictures of all these things that were in the diamond house. And so we had this like clipboard full of these pictures. And the one thing that was really rare was this little nickel plated parlor stove that they burned coal in. And he said, we're, me and my partner are driving through Benton Heights, which is a rough part of Dodge in this area. And uh, we look over and in front of this trailer is this little nickel plated parlor stove with flowers growing out of it. And he said, I double take, I pull off the road. And I said, you know, I asked my partner, did you see that? And he said, what? And he looked, showed him the clipboard and they backed up. That was it, that was it, right? So they walked up to the door knocked on the door and a lady answered and, and uh, said, ma'am, we love that stove that you have out there. Can you tell us where you, where we can get something like that? And she said, well, my ex gave it to me for some gift, but he doesn't live here anymore, but here's his name and phone number. Bam, he gets busted. He's got loose lips. They all go, to, they all go down, right? So come to find out, and both the people that did the job, did the stealing, and the police officer told me that what happened was because there was such a massive amount of things, because it was so written about in the media, they were afraid to sell up everything. So they took everything and divided it equally amongst them, and then they would take it and hide it. One hid it like in the upstairs of his barn. The other guy hid it in a storage area in his basement. The lady hit it, Clawson lady hit it underneath her wrap around her mobile home. None of them sold anything. They, so they got all that stuff back, except the 22 karat diamond ring, which McCoy brothers appraised at like two and a half million dollars, and the giant medallion, which was appraised at over a half a million dollars. They found out that those kids took those to the south side of Chicago and sold them to a uh, jewelry dealer there, like a swap guy, for 12,000 cash. And then he, back then you didn't have to have anybody's driver's license, you didn't have to ask questions, you just bought stuff and sold stuff. So he had taken the diamond and out and sold it to a diamond buying place in London for like 60,000. Supposedly, they chopped it up and sold it off differently so it wouldn't be detected. But that that's it, all gone now. The scariest thing was the girl that told me the story. She came in my museum twice, two days in a row, spent hours without saying one word. And finally, uh, I went up to her, my mom and I were there, and I said, Man, you seem really fascinated by this story. Can, can you tell me why? And she said, do you want to know? And I said, yeah, I do want to know. And she said, I'm the one that broke in the diamond house. And I was like, oh my gosh. I mean, th this is all my stuff is right here in front of her. And she was capable of getting into this place. So she went on to tell me the whole story. The whole, all the details, it was so good. I should have filmed her, but she was a mammoth girl. She probably killed me. But in the end, she said, Chris, you know what? I would do it again right now. She says, the best high I ever had in my life. <laughs> I'm thinking, I can't buy a good enough security system at this point. <laughs> and it's a big country, my mom used to always tell me as a kid explaining the unexplainable to me and the fun and the weird and my goodness this is both fun and weird and my goodness a guy that tries to basically entomb himself and surround himself with jewelry i always think of the great poem by shelley ozymandias and a traveler's wandering around through the desert and is told about this great statue of this once great king and what is inscribed on the on the statue surrounded by desert is my name is ozymandias king of kings Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Nothing besides remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare. 
the lone and level sands stretch far away. And as hard as these guys and this one sort of cult leader tried to talk about his eternal life and everyone else's, well, a little something happened. He died, (laughs) and everybody else was going to die too. If you love what you're listening to and the stories we bring you every week, please, by all means, give us a five-star rating. It really helps us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to us on. Finally, the story of a young man's journey to sobriety, a path that for many is filled with ups and downs. Here's Casey Brogan with his story. I was born with PDD, which is pervasive developmental disorder. I developed uh, physically and mentally a lot slower than other kids, and it required a lot of intense physical therapy. Back then, in the 90s, there was a study that was just coming out about how to treat that disorder. It really hadn't been used much. I think I was like the first person in my area to undergo that form of therapy. I had all the components to have a good childhood, but none of the mental ability to be able to enjoy it. I had loving parents. We, we grew up with a lot of money, but I was, I was miserable because I'd spend my whole day at school and then I would go home and I would be in physical therapy or mental therapy. Everything in my life as a child was about being outside of my comfort zone because I was so far behind everyone else that if I was comfortable, not only was I not progressing, I wasn't catching up either. It was very frustrating, but without it, doctors at the time said I would have been fortunate enough to have said mom and dad by 18. And with the the emotional issues that came with it, I didn't have a lot of friends. In fact, I alienated a lot of people as a kid. I just didn't know how to process emotions and feelings. So everything from happiness to sadness to anger, I felt at its its most extreme. My parents said I was a sweet kid, but I was very easily agitated. Anything could set me off. Because pervasive developmental disorder falls on the autism spectrum. So I had problems uh, losing. I had problems with people not saying the things I wanted them to say. Everything would just snowball me into these over-the-top extreme reactions. Made me a, a nightmare to be around. By the age of 9 or 10, I think, is when it, I started catching up. I never fully caught up. I've Even to this day, I still feel like I'm playing catch-up in a lot of areas. I, I didn't really start to come into my own until I started uh, playing sports. Swimming was my was my, the sport. That, that helped with my confidence a considerable amount. That was what I did. I went to school, and then I swam all day, and then I went to bed, and it was easy to have that structure. I didn't have to think about what I had to do. I just, I just did everything blindly. And then I found something I was really passionate about my junior year of high school when I was uh, enrolled in a film program uh, as part of a dual enrollment with my school, which was a technical school. I barely passed senior year, barely graduated, and I went to college. I only lasted about two semesters because I was drinking so much and smoking a lot of weed and sleeping in and not going to classes. I had gotten this idea of college because when I was a when I was a kid not being able to emotionally relate to people when people can't emotionally relate to other people they bond to something that gives them that social fulfillment and for me that was movies and television so I learned a lot about life from movies and TV and I understood as a concept you know life is not like the movies but I never really fully grasped that in the back of my mind. So I had this idea of what college was going to be. I just forgot the part where you study and learn. I ended up dropping out. I drifted around for a while, number of odd jobs. I worked at a news station for a while. And it was an extremely stressful job in doing live shows and everything. I was, I was an editor 
for them. I would cut together B-roll footage and upload it into the system. And then I would also assistant direct the shows, like running the audio and playing the clips and all that. It was extremely stressful. And I've, I don't think there was a day that goes by that someone wasn't yelling at someone, if not me. Growing up with my disorders makes me extremely emotional, extremely susceptible to loud noises and a lot of anxiety. So in order to deal with that anxiety, I was, I started drinking. At one point, I had a, a bottle of vodka in my car and on my breaks from work. We'd get done with a stressful show. I'd go out to my car and I'd drink and then I'd come back in and work. Once I quit the news station, uh, I started working for my local church. I also got into my first relationship, which was really toxic looking back on it. We ended up breaking up. When I got into that relationship, I really stopped drinking and like a crazy person. Love kind of filled that void that I was trying to fill inside of myself for a while. But it was like a, it was like a plug in the bathtub. But once that was taken out, the floodwaters came rushing in. Uh, so when I got out of that relationship, I started working at a local pizzeria in my hometown. I didn't even realize it at the time, but it was in the middle of a large amount of bars, the central haven for cocaine. And the pizzeria I worked at, every single employee did cocaine, almost every night, if not during their shifts. We'd wait for the boss man to leave, and then it was was all hats off. We were doing shots, doing blow. That was all fun and good at first, and it was really, it was really filling that void for a while that was left by when my girlfriend and I broke up. So I would stay out all night because I missed her, and I was incredibly depressed. I thought drugs were the, the answer to that reality they were just fueling that depression Uh, and I developed a really really bad cocaine problem that lasted lasted up until a year ago my whole personality changed I was starting to revert back to things that I would do feel and say when I was a child I felt my my mind regressing to that that's that state of, you know, the worst of my developmental disease when I was younger. I started not having any threshold for, uh, with patience or anxiety or anger. I just ever just felt like everything was right on the surface. All the negative emotions I felt so deeply, but when it came to anything beneficial, like happiness, uh, I, I felt so numb to it. I ended up losing my job at the church. You know, I couldn't control my temper. Uh, when I started off, I never thought I had a problem with anything. And then going into it, like, okay, I might, it went from I don't have a problem to okay, I might have a problem to I definitely have a problem, but I don't care, to I have a problem and I care. But that took five years for that development to happen. So in the grand scheme of my life, these are the... I am going to eventually have to go to rehab. I am going to eventually have to deal with that, but this is still the fun phase. Like I can still enjoy this phase before I have to get serious and you know, my my life is essentially over. You know, the party will be over eventually. So I might as well enjoy the party as long as I can because this is a problem and it will develop and it will come to a head and will ruin my life, but not today. <laughs> Towards the end of my career at the pizzeria I worked at, a friend came over and he was having a bad night. So we drank a lot. And I was sitting there on the couch. My friend was literally on the floor, passed out, blacked out drunk. You couldn't wake him up. You could slap him, you could pick him up, nothing. Gone. And I was sitting there on the couch alone again. And I got it into my head that it would be a good idea to take my whole bottle of antidepressants and see what was going to happen. In my mindset, it was either I'm gonna f- I'm gonna get really high or I'm gonna die. Either way, I don't care. Which, looking back on it, doesn't really make sense because it wasn't the type of medication that would even get you high. I don't know what I was thinking. I was very drunk, uh, so I didn't care either way. So I took all of it, and my mom came home, 
later, fortunately. And she saw that the pill bottle was out and was empty. I ended up throwing up on my own just from all the drinking. We still went to the hospital. From there, I, my mom sent me to a psych ward where I stayed for a week. For anyone who hasn't been in a psych ward, really don't recommend it. <laughs> it's, there is absolutely nothing to do. And everyone else is crazy. <laughs> Literally, that's why they're there. So there's not much room for conversation. And, but you're expected to be up and be alive and walk around and be happy in this miserable, horrible environment. Because at first, when I was in the psych ward, all I was doing was sleeping all day. Because it was all there was to do. It was, I was hoping that if I passed enough time, that I would get out of there. But in order to get out of a psych ward, a doctor has to deem you medically fit to, to leave. Sleeping all day was not uh, appealing to them <laughs> as far as, as releasing me. Yeah, so eventually I got out of that. I went right back to my old ways. I went to rehab a total of three times. First time I went to rehab, I came out, started drinking immediately. <laughs> immediately. I was like, oh God, that was awful. I need a beer. <laughs> Didn't learn a thing. Yeah, the first time I went to rehab was just because, you know, my cocaine addiction was so bad. I was spending all of my money. And my parents told me, okay, you're going to rehab in a week. So I was like, okay. So I've got a week to party is the way I saw it. And then they realized that and they're like, no, you're going today. <laughs> so, they sent me, so they sent me straight there. Uh, the second time I went, the first time I went was for 30 days. The second time I went for was for two months. It was really beneficial. I was really taking care of myself. Two or three months after I left rehab, I was I was back out again, drinking and using cocaine again. I was in a program called Narcotics Anonymous, which I guess is uh, makes me not anonymous anymore. <laughs> Narcotics Anonymous is a great program. One of the things they'll tell you is that there's this pink fluffy cloud of sobriety. It's when you're super happy to be sober because you've been miserable for so long. It's nice to just feel normal and you're really excited because it's all the new stuff. It's, you know, it's going to meetings, it's going to groups, it's self-improvement, uh, it's the sponsor, it's calling your sponsor, it's having all these new friends, uh, but it all wears off eventually. The meetings get tedious to go to and working steps becomes a chore. There's something in uh, Narcotics Anonymous called the efforts. When eventually, you know, we know everything's good for us and everything's going to work out if we do this. But F it, I want to get high. That's that. So what triggered it was was coming off that pink fluffy cloud. Realizing I just wanted to drink. All my friends were going out. Why can't I? I, 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 was, a, I was a child again. You can't have this. No, but you don't understand. I want it. <laughs> so, that, so that's what triggered it the second time. That led to probably the worst that my addiction had ever gotten. I lived in an apartment in St. Petersburg, Florida. I had moved all my stuff out of my mom's place and put it in that tiny little studio apartment. And I was always like, okay, today's the day I'm gonna sort through everything. And that day never came. It looked like a hoarder's apartment. The stuff all over and all I was doing was, I was sleeping, I was getting up in the morning, crawling over these mounds of stuff getting dressed for work, going to work, driving home to Sarasota, buying cocaine, coming back, doing cocaine and going to bed. And that was what I did almost every day for a year. And the apartment got so bad, there was there was cockroaches everywhere. I was in such deep depression. I just had no ability to care for myself outside of basic functions like brushing your teeth or showering, uh, making sure my clothes were clean. So my outward appearance to the world would still be semi-decent. Whereas the reality of my life was much worse. I had ended up eventually having to ask my parents for help with that apartment. And it was probably one of the worst days of my life because no one had seen how I was living for an entire year until that day. And that was, it was the most shame I've ever felt was showing them how bad it had gotten in my life. And it wasn't, it wasn't hoarding in the sense it was like, I didn't want to throw things out. It was hoarding in the sense it was just, I had a bunch of stuff and I just didn't care. I didn't care that the inside of my house looked like that. I didn't care that there was all this stuff. I didn't care for the stuff. 
I just didn't care to move it. <laughs> just complete apathy for everything in life. So I was able to move out of there and I moved back in with my mom and I felt like such a failure because it was the first time besides college that I had ever lived away from home and it could not have gone any worse. So I moved back in with my mom for a while and that was going horribly. I moved to St. Petersburg again and I lived with an old high school friend of mine and another roommate and we lived in this house. He had a roommate that was a big partier. He was a young kid. He was like 18, 19. He, he attracted a bad crowd to the apartment and I would start drinking with them. Then they would start asking if I wanted things, which I always did. I would take anything anyone gave to me. <laughs> Someone put something in my hand, I would do it without question. Cocaine, the cocaine use led into the use of methamphetamines. I started using meth very heavily over the course of a three-month period. Although my cocaine addiction lasted for four or five years, my meth addiction only lasted for two or three very, very intense months where I barely slept. I mean barely slept. I would go an entire week without sleeping. And even then, it would only be for about an hour. I wrote so much in that time. <laughs> I, I thought, this is the best drug ever. I am so productive. I'm writing so much. And then once I got sober, I went back and I read through it. And it's the worst stuff you'll ever read. It's so poorly written and just not convoluted. My health was decaying so rapidly. I wasn't sleeping. I was just going to work and then going home and, you know, sitting in a dark room for eight hours. And it's like, okay, time to go back to work. <laughs> it's funny now looking back on it. But it was very sad at the time. That's what led me to the final time I ever asked for help from my parents. I've put my, I've, I just want to say I've, I've put my parents through absolute hell and I'm never going to live that down. It will forever be the biggest regret of my life is what I've done to my parents in my lifetime. So my mom in-depth researched a bunch of uh, rehabilitation facilities because the, th the facilities we'd gone to hadn't been working and it's not so much that they hadn't been working it's that I hadn't been working at it but we wanted to find something better and different and far away because my parents uh, didn't want me home they, they wanted me to go far away and not to come back that was the goal eventually they stumbled upon a rehabilitation facility in Etta, Mississippi so a week after she found that Packed my bags, got on a plane to Mississippi, and there I was. And for the next uh, month, I was in a beautiful facility in the mountains. And then I moved to treatment facility in Oxford, Mississippi, which is the next step of the program. And I, I lived there for two months. It was kind of, it's like you attended classes for the first half of the day. And then there were some classes in the second half, but if you were, there were different levels. And if you were a later level, if you'd been there for long enough, you didn't have to attend classes in the later half of the day. You were actually encouraged to find a job. So I started working at a, a local restaurant in uh, Oxford. After, after working at the restaurant, I moved from Resolutions to a halfway house. It's like a normal house. You live with a bunch of guys. They're, the only thing is that there's accountability. You have to be home at a certain time. You have to be able to pass a drug test randomly and a breathalyzer every night. You have to do X amount of community service, have a full-time job. It, it's a lot, but it's necessary to stay busy, not have idle hands. As I was, as I was living at the halfway house, there was, this, there was this looming event at the place I worked, which was our Christmas party, which was all-inclusive party where they, they took all the tips that one of the, the to-go register made and they compiled it all into a, a party at a local bar in Oxford where all the drinks were free. It was October, it was November, it was like, it was getting closer and closer and I was like, I know I can't do this, I know I can't go, I can't go. So I've been living in that halfway house for three months. I, like most addicts, came up with a extremely devious plan where I was going to request, because you, you, live in, you live there for two months, you, you're able to request a night off 
where you can go and stay with someone else. You don't have to be back that night, but you have to be back the next day. I was like, okay, so I will request that off. I will go, I'll drink at this party, and then I will come back the next day. And by that time, the alcohol will be out of my system, so it won't show up on the breathalyzer. The drug tests don't test for alcohol, so perfect. So I go to the party, and I drink. I ended up going home with a coworker of mine, and we went to the after party, and I smoked weed at the after party, which sealed my fate of... But I didn't care, because addicts can't see long-term effects. It's just what's right in front of you. It's I'm going to feel really bad after doing this, but I get to be high before it. I went back to the halfway house the next day after going home with that coworker. I took the drug test, and of course I failed, and I was kicked out of the halfway house, so I was technically homeless at that point. Uh, but I started a relationship with that coworker after that night, and I moved in with her. So I lived, I lived with her for a number of weeks. Uh, I was not. This was around Christmas time because of the Christmas party. I was not allowed to come home for Christmas. It was the first time I'd ever been not spent Christmas with my family, which hurt, but was fair. That relationship went horribly and did not last long at all. It was probably about two months. And I took it really hard because I don't take breakups very well. So I went out. I got blackout drunk. I ended up texting her a bunch of texts that I don't even know what I said to this day because I apparently in my drunken stupor not only texted her a bunch of times but deleted the text afterwards because I knew full well sober me is not going to want to see this. (laughs) I ended up getting arrested that night for public drunk. So I left uh, jail the next day. I bonded out. I missed a shift at work that I was supposed to work that morning. I called I called work and let them know what happened and everything and they uh, they essentially they put me on probation. I had lost my relationship. I was on probation at work and I was homeless. And for two months I lived in a in a parking garage. I worked my limited hours and I tried my best to, you know, show up to work and be happy and everything, even though I was I was living in my car and showering at the gym and it was miserable because I was working with my ex. So I ended up quitting. It, but in the meantime, I had asked my parents for help for first and last on an apartment. So I was able to get an apartment, which I still live in to this day. The last day I was supposed to work was the, the day all the restaurants got shut down and the pandemic started. My parents let me come home and I was sitting in my mom's, my mom's house and I was bored. It was the middle of the night. And so I texted an old person I had gone to rehab with who I know wasn't clean and sober. I drive over there. I've ingested heroin probably six or seven times in my entire life. And it was always been with this person. Because it wasn't, it wasn't my drug of choice. I bought some some heroin off them because I like to do the drugs that the other people in the room were doing. I said, I'm going to go pick up some more stuff. You know, here's what you bought. I'll be back in 20 minutes or so. So I normally there's someone there to regulate how much I'm ingesting because I'm a crazy person. When it comes to drugs, I will go far beyond anyone else. And since no one was there, I poured the whole bag out and I snorted the entire thing in one line, which is very, very bad. And immediately I overdosed. Immediately I overdosed. This is the only time I ever overdosed. So I ended up passing out, laying on my back, throwing up and being on my back and choking on my own vomit. Fortunately, the person that I was hanging out with actually came back in time, saw me lying there, knew immediately what was going on, and also knew CPR, thankfully. Basically saved my life. Again, this is probably the best person you would ever do drugs with because most addicts will let you die. That's the sad reality of the situation because A, there's a lot of liabilities with performing CPR if you're not trained to. Two, calling the ambulance or calling the cops, a lot of addicts are afraid that they'll get in trouble as well. So a lot of people will just let you die and then just leave you somewhere to be found. Eventually the paramedics got there, loaded me up into the ambulance, took me to the hospital. From my experience, it was I snorted a line of heroin, 
closed my eyes, I opened them, and I was in the hospital. That was, the, that was my whole experience right there. So it was very confusing. And also, I was in extreme amount of pain. It was the worst headache I've ever had. Body aching, just weak, could stand up. And I, the grossest part is that I still had vomit in my lungs. I had them call my mom, and my mom showed up, and she cried, and I felt horrible, like I always do. Then my dad came, and he was just disappointed and scared. So my mom looked up different treatments for me again, but she wasn't looking for rehab facilities or psych wards or any of that. She actually found a treatment that was just starting in Florida. Uh, It was called ketamine infusion. It's supposed to make you feel amazing. It's supposed to have long-term effects on depression and everything. So I did that. Really crazy experience. It is the best thing that I've ever done for my mental health. I was active. I was smiling. I was happy. I was able to have conversations with people. And when I came back home from Oxford after doing that is when my life really started to change. I no longer do any sort of hard drug. I don't smoke weed. As a recovering addict, I still have the mentality of an addict that is applied to other aspects of my life. I don't use the drug use, but it doesn't mean I don't have addict mentality. And addict mentality is essentially, it's childish in a lot of ways. It's, it's wanting everything now. Wanting instant gratification, just like drugs. Drugs are instant gratification, so I want instant gratification in all of my life. The hard part of that is that anything that's worth having takes time and effort and struggle So all I want is to be past my guilt and my shame. But because I've accrued so much in my life, it's going to take a long time to get rid of it. I've realized through getting sober that although there are rewards along the way, most of the things that I want, most of the things that will give me inner peace are still things that are going to take a lot of time. But as long as I make some sort of progress towards it every single day, talking about my feelings, sharing with others, seeing a therapist, taking my medications, I'm, I'm going to get there one day. Currently, I live with my roommate CJ, and he has been the best roommate I could have ever asked for. He hired me on as the social media designer for his Instagram and his Facebook for his uh, gym that he runs. In return, I get free personal training. So I'm so I'm working out now. So I'm very thankful for him. He's been he's been amazing. I couldn't ask for anyone better. Uh, life has started getting better as well. I've I've been on the straight and narrow now. I've I've no urge to use any sort of heart drug. My relationship with my parents is repairing itself. I'm able to see my nephew, which I wasn't allowed to for a while. I have a, a niece that just came into this world, and it's so nice to know that I have family members in my life that will never have to know anything about the bad parts of my history, anything about my drug use. I get a complete clean slate with them. All they'll know is Uncle Casey. They won't know Uncle Casey, the drug addict. Uh, it's an extreme blessing. The longer I stay sober, the more things in my life I get back. Nothing gives me more joy than that. Thanks to Casey Brogan for his bluntness. Any family struggling with addiction or any person who has struggled and continues to struggle with addiction knows it's no duck walk and that patience and time, well, these are the things that matter most and, in the end, a path forward which he's found. Thank goodness. By the way, that Christmas party when he was living at the halfway house, well, that was the one that did it. A looming event, as he said, all the drinks were free. And that's a bad thing if you're an addict. It's not a good thing. I loved what he said about his parents not allowing him home for Christmas. I was hurt, but it was fair. And then, of course, what he had to say about his addiction mentality, wanting everything now, instant gratification prevailing over all else. Most of the things I want, well, they're going to take a lot of time to get. And that's the realization. I'm going to get there one day. By the way, if you've missed any of our previous podcasts, please go back and listen to them. 
We have the story of how Blockbuster almost beat Netflix, the story of Spam, the canned meat, and also the story of a man who paints rocks for our veterans, plus many, many more. Thanks again for listening. I'm Lee Habib. This is the Our American Stories podcast. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health, but by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club.